Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Listen, ours is an epic tale. True friendship. Heart-stopping danger. We are not two men. We are ten men. Listen! Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiologist, a sports nutritionist, and a competitive bodybuilder. Hey, folks. Rob Fortress Fortney here, a former editor at Muscle Mag International, former competitive bodybuilder, and current strength training enthusiast, powerlifter. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm here in Vegas, so it's kind of loud and crazy, but I'm a competitive uh, powerlifter strength coach and just all around great guy. All right. Phil's on the road. It seems like we're, a lot of us are on the road. I guess that's one of the benefits of having uh, four hosts, three or four co-hosts here. Uh, today on the phone, we have with us John Kiefer, uh, who is going to tell us about uh, a sort of a physics approach to uh, dieting. And I know he has some personal experiences there, too. So, John, why don't you just kind of, you know, tell readers about uh, your background uh, in dieting or in physique change, both academic and sort of athletic? Um, so, you know, classic story, fat kid. Uh, hated it and um, tried all the different diets. So when I was about um, 18, I actually started going to the medical libraries and checking it out. And um, so I went to college for sports medicine and got uh, derailed, it's a funny story, uh, into physics and just fell in love with the curriculum. So I ended up uh, becoming a physicist, going to grad school for physics. And uh, the whole time I was always lucky enough to be by excellent medical libraries um, so I just continued to learn, continued practicing on myself, um, new theories. You know, I thought cycling would be the way to get thin. So, you know, I, I was out riding 100 miles in sub-five-hour times. Uh, that didn't do so well for me, so I did bodybuilding and killed myself with the dieting. Uh, and then that's what actually led me into some of the more kind of, I'd say, advanced theories of nutrition that I work with now. And... um I just research out why everything could possibly work so I can refine it as much as possible and then usually get a large number of people to get on board so I can figure out how it works with different people and go from there and publish the book, working on another book, uh, always trying to get my my ideas out there. Okay, so tell us about your book. What, what's the name of it? Uh, my first book is called The Carbonite Solution. Okay. And uh, that one... The idea is you don't eat carbohydrates or very, very low. And in this whole conversation, when I talk about carbohydrates, I'm usually not including fiber. Um, it has just such different reactions endocrinologically and metabolically in the body. I almost don't even consider it a carb. Right, yeah. Um, so it's very low carb, less than 30 grams a day. And uh, the problem with that normally is you know, all the hormones that allow you to burn fat really get suppressed after about a week. Um, and it only takes like six to eight hours of kind of high glycemic carb feeding to re-spark the release of all those hormones for another three to four days. So, um, so are you talking about like uh, thyroid, leptin, those kinds of? Yes, yes, okay. exactly. Okay, exactly. Um, so um, 
once a week you get a, a carb night, so it's like six to eight hours of carb feeding, and then um, you know it allows you to get very very lean um, without dialing your diet in too terribly much. You know, if you want to get into bodybuilder competition, of course there's other things to consider, but for the average person, they can lose a lot of fat. And um, recently, I had somebody who did a DEXA scan um, before and after. And they lost six pounds of fat and gained one and a half pounds of muscle in the same time period. I think uh, six weeks, six or eight weeks. Okay. Yeah, and listeners, just so you know, I mean, uh, DEX, I think, is the, sort of the key word there. I'm, I'm going to be a teacher here for a minute. Yeah. Okay. Stuff like skinfold calipers or bioimpedance, you know, you're not going to be able to make distinctions, body comp distinctions, around the three to six pound range probably. I mean, that'd be that'd be kind of stretching it. I mean, sort of if it's within the limitations of those measures. But DEXA... That's pretty darn accurate stuff. So if you know you see changes of that magnitude, you're you're probably valid there. So, um, no, that's cool. Now, how how often did you say uh, is the carb? You know, the brief. It's not so much a carb binge; it's a big carb meal, or is it? Um. So in all the research, it it takes about six to eight hours to uh, of kind of elevated insulin levels to get that reaction. So you could do it in one meal. Well. You could do it in two meals if you ate um, primarily low glycemic carbs and put in a lot of fat with them. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could do it more continuous through the night by eating things like scones and donuts, you know, pizza. Okay, so this is sort <laughs> of the antithesis of what you often hear about nighttime feeding. You know, like we were talking a few weeks ago about with Graham Thomas about, you know, the nurse's health study and about how when people eat at night, they actually become fatter. Um, mm-hmm. Now, so just if we could back up for a sec, how how often do they do this, this insulin reset kind of thing? That's once per week. Okay. So this is a – other than that, this is a, a very low-carbohydrate diet. It's a, it's a VLCD kind of. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm far from a dietitian or an expert on these types of things. It's not my forte, but <clears throat> back when I was a bodybuilder, I used to – do something that would probably be similar to what you're talking about. I'd do the, you know, the really stringent, stringent dieting, um, you know, the 12, 14 weeks before the competition all week. And then once, once a week, usually on Saturday or Sunday, I would have kind of like your, you know, the, the classic quote unquote cheat meal or cheat meals, uh, where you, you know, you, you bump things up and you kind of eat more regularly. And consequently, that would be a lot of things that are more, you know, carbohydrate, um, dense. And I, I always had the, the theory, and again, this, 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 this was not with any sort of education behind the theory, just my thought thinking, because it seemed to be that doing that would re-spark the body into, um, you know, losing more fat again, like kind of for the next several days, which kind of lends itself to what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, the uh, research completely supports that too, <clears throat> and so does the real world application. So I think, um, I oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Phil. I was just going to take the more meathead view here. How much of this could also be just, you know, uh, mental? To where, man, I got all week, but I get this one thing, and it just resets me enough mentally to where I can do that BLCD another week. <laughs> you, know, you know, because I know in a week from now I'm going to get my donuts and scones. Um, I mean, would you say, I mean, a lot of that plays into it? Oh, yeah, it for a lot of people, it makes the diet more tolerable. Um, yep. But if you go through and take long-term studies, and that's studies that last um, longer than six months on very low-carb diets, actually they have rapid weight loss for the first six months, and it usually beats out any other type of diet. 
But strangely enough, even if their caloric load doesn't increase, they gain back about 50% of that weight yeah. in the next six months. I've heard that as a critique of Adkins-type diets. That, yeah. Yeah, the rebound is, is pretty pretty bad after several months, yeah. Yeah. But and, is that after and, adding more carbs back in? Um, that's or even is that staying, staying very low carb? That's staying very low carb. So that's staying in tune with um, you know how my week is. Okay. So it's yeah, it's not just Atkins that produces those effects. Um, yeah, the yeah. longer so you're you saying, go so you're without carbs, it, it just makes your body more efficient. Your thyroid uh, hormone levels really get low, so you can just get more energy out of your food, essentially. Yeah. So your body it takes a while. You're saying for the body to recalibrate itself with that new kind of um, you know approach to carbohydrate consumption. Correct. Correct. What I think is most interesting, uh, what John's talking about, probably is the uh, the fairly brief window, you know, that that you're sort of illustrating here. That you know, in a period of six hours or so, you can sort of get back to square one as far as you know. You're, what we're trying to do here, of course, listeners, is prevent what I call starvation mode. Right? The, the human body doesn't like to be deprived, so. Going beyond just mild discomfort, but you know, when, when you're really deprived, your bot, your metabolism is going to slow down. And as we mentioned before, you know, thyroid hormone is a big driver of that. T4 will convert to T3, and I'm not going to bore people with physiology, but the point being is, you get less of that conversion to the more active form of thyroid. Your metabolism slows down. Leptin levels fall. People get sluggish. They get the munchies. You can see this on a metabolic cart. I mean, classic studies done back in the even in the late 60s, 70s. They they took college guys and they, they thirty five hundred calorie a day college guys they put them on five hundred calorie a day diets and they tracked them across a month and boy their oxygen consumption their metabolic rate dropped forty freaking percent because they wow. went real low and stayed low like indefinitely and that's gonna be something we talk about in the second half of this call because we're gonna talk about energy balance a little bit but so uh, so John with this. When you're not resetting, can you describe what people are eating uh, according to your book and you know and the evidence that you have? What are they eating uh, during most of the time? Um, most of the time, it's meats and not necessarily lean meats. It might be hamburger, um, ham steaks, bacon, eggs, uh, and a lot of vegetables like um, low-starch vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, asparagus. Uh, limited tomatoes, um, things like that. So a lot of salads. Uh, salmon is is a big one for people, and they try to get in some oils. So I always recommend um, some kind of fish oil, and something that's become popular um, is mixing. There's those lemon flavored concentrated fish oils now with uh, Greek yogurt, so it makes this kind of lemony custard. The and cottage cheese. It's I'd say the that kind of rounds out the main staple. Oh, almonds. Okay. So this almost does, I agree with Fortress, this does sound a lot like a bodybuilder type pre-competition diet where, you know, they start cutting out the pancakes and the biscuits and the bread. You know, the carbohydrates just sort of go out the window. Um, But they're trying to, I remember hearing a bodybuilder once say, it was Rick Valente, in fact, on that old show Body Shaping. That's going to date me a little bit. He said, you eat eat protein to keep the muscle full. Uh, And I'm thinking, well, Actually, I, I would go more along the lines of carbs and glycogen keep a muscle full. But anyway, it's that classic bodybuilder mentality, I think, which is you know keep the protein high, 
cut the carbs low. Now, one difference I think would be that that John's talking about keeping the fat relatively high too, and and or at least moderate, right? Uh, yeah, I'd try to balance that. And and by the way, it's okay to call me Kiefer. Um, okay, listeners who know me may have no idea who you're talking about every time you say John. Okay, I, well, I, okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's okay, no problem. Um, and um, so I try to get a fifty fifty balance. You know, when I when I make meal plans and the Suggested meal plans in the book are about 50% of the calories from protein and 50% from fat, which breaks down to about, at least in gram ratios, seven grams of protein for every three grams of fat. Okay. So I'm, and, what's, what's, oh, what would be the gram of protein daily dose, do you think, on average? For like a um, size guy? Probably, I mean, it's pretty, it's higher than normal. You know, people are probably getting, uh, anywhere from, 150 to 300. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, I'm a real big fan of not worrying too much about your daily caloric balance, but your weekly. Um, so people that go, you know, they just a lot of people just don't get hungry during the week, so they're down around 1,500 calories, and these are people who are used to maybe 3,000 or above. Mm-hmm. And then that carb night, I mean, they'll smash through. 6,000 calories or more, maybe 10. Uh, it's amazing what people can put down. <laughs> uh, I just, I, I'm shocked sometimes when I hear it. I just, I don't know how they can get that much food down, but they seem to do it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I concur with Phil. I mean, that's when you're eating less in general and no carbs at all. You know, I mean, Jesus, a saltine cracker can look like a glorious golden <laughs> sticky bun, you know. So, uh, <laughs> well, my, my cheat meal, you know, referring back to what I was saying about, you know, when I used to compete as a bodybuilder, my, the, those cheat meals that I refer to once a week were things like, um, um, you know, chicken subs at Subway and stuff. And those, those m- might as well have been like, you know, 12 dozen donuts. Right. Yeah. No, 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 I know what you're saying. Yeah, your perception was, wow, this is freaking fantastic. <laughs> yeah, you throw all, some mayonnaise on it, and all of a sudden you think you're eating like you know eight pizzas. Yeah, right. right. Such indulgence. That's actually what uh, what first tripped me up on this diet, or tipped me off to this diet, was um, I was bodybuilding and I was just determined to get all the fat off my stomach for the first time, and um, I just I broke. You know, I was doing the classic like chicken breasts and asparagus all the time for a month and I just I cracked my uh my girl I was a teacher at the time and so was my girlfriend and she bought a couple dozen donuts for students for the next morning enabler yeah yeah and I uh <laughs> man I ripped through that first dozen donuts and you know not that I normally mention this but I just I got so sick it was just so much volume at once I ended up throwing them all up and then I saw that second donut or that second dozen and I just went through that one too except that one stayed down well, isn't the, the classic the classic story about I can't remember who it was that top amateur guy Lonnie, a uh, dozen or so years ago, and he was dining so so hard for so long, and then his friend finally found him in the back of his car with like something like a dozen powdered donuts. And he, <laughs> yeah, and he, and he just looked at him and he was like, he was like, I couldn't help it, man, I couldn't help it. And he just was covered like with uh, powder all over him. You know what, too. Uh, I don't know if how this fits into the whole reset idea, not not the endocrine part, but the the psychological part. But I think it, I might be wrong, but I think it might have been Vince Galanti or one of those top ranked amateur guys years ago. He would purposely on his cheat meals wig out and overdo it, 
and basically make himself sick of, yeah. you know, whatever it was that was tempting him so badly. And then he didn't have any problem in the next two weeks or something because he's kind of sick on it. And I'm not sure that's a probably the optimal approach, but I can see how you would burn out a little. I mean, my wife and I were talking about some – my wife's background is in counseling, and we were talking about this uh, this research where people were even imagining overeating a problem food, you know, a favorite food to the point that they just didn't care for it as much. They actually ate less of it later. So I, I do think you could sort of desensitize yourself and by kind of – you know, wigging out like that and stuff. Yeah. Sounds um, like the um, classic Tibetan monks. They're you know supposed to be celibate, so um, once every two months they would force themselves to have sex for five days straight. There were no breaks. So then after that, they could go <laughs> the next two months without having sex again. Okay. <laughs> Build it into the system. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Okay. Now my biggest concern, I guess, when when we talk about this is the nighttime thing. And I mean, because the weekly energy balance is so negative, right? I mean, this is very similar, actually, what Chris Shugart was talking about uh, with his fasting, pulse fasting idea a couple of weeks ago, I think, looking over the course of a week instead of a day. Um, but why at night? Why why the giant load at night and not some other time of the day? Um. You know, partly because when I first designed it, that just seemed to be – I had no theoretical justification for it. Uh, it just seemed to work the best. Your um, carbs after that, after a week without any – they make you really sleepy. You know, you get some serotonin rushes, and invariably you've got the high proteins. You've got tryptophan in there to um, to start producing um, kind of this sleepy effect. So I kind of – put it, tacked it on the end of the day, just A, to keep people from eating all day, and B, because it made you sleepy, so it just mm-hmm. kind of made sense, um, but until till the last two years, I didn't really have a reason for that, and um, and what and it, it actually sparked the creation of the second diet that um, is becoming popular amongst a lot of power lifters, and I call it carb backloading, and what I found was people who resistance trained did incredibly well with the diet, and people who didn't uh, just had slower results. And um, so, as you know, you know insulin sensitivity is higher in the first half of the day, but that's both fat tissue and muscle tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, once you resistance train, you know you get um, non-insulin. You know, for your basically your muscle tissue can still absorb the glucose for several hours with regardless of insulin sensitivity through uh, the glucose transporter translocation that goes on. Um, And what I was finding is, you know, those people, they would just wake up the next day so full and tight. It was almost like their muscles had just absorbed almost all the glycogen. Um, So I've actually incorporated that into a diet where there's almost nightly carb feedings, and the first half of the day is very low carb, which I know goes against everything um but it it's also produced phenomenal results yeah it'd be the kind of no. thing it'd be fun to see a, a intervention study on that because i've always been a fan and a proponent of low glycemic carbs throughout the first half of the day because insulin production i mean it, it is greater part one of the reasons that you're you have better insulin uh, glucose sensitivity insulin sensitivity glucose tolerance is because insulin production is greater in the morning Mm-hmm. Um, now that can play against you too, of course. You don't want giant spikes of insulin repeatedly, but 
I really like to actually fill up glycogen stores throughout, you know, the morning when I'm actually in a little bit better overall glucose tolerance. But like you said too, I'm also a bodybuilder of many years and the predominant part of my body mass is, is muscle tissue, you know. So if I was very obese, I don't know, you know, I, I might have to be more careful with some of that. But. Yeah, I'm not sure it would work as well. Well, my, my whole thing, you know, being, coming from a background of bodybuilding, then switching to, you know, just strictly strength training powerlifting was, um, you know, the philosophy being that you, you lose muscle with fat and gain fat with muscle. Um, and I, I strongly believe in the whole concept of, you know, they're two different animals, right? You're looking at one guy who wants to either stay lean or wants to stay lean because of his bodybuilding, bodybuilding pursuits or for what have you. But I mean, when you're talking about, you know, like, and I think Phil will probably back me up on this. When you're talking about just sheer, um, you know, uh, weight moving mass, um, functional weight moving mass, I think, I think just total, um, caloric <laughs> overkill is, is always a winning move. Um, and of course, of course that might, that might, that might defeat any sort of purpose of having, you know, a ripped six pack on the beach. But again, I mean, it's like, you know, do, do you want to look sexy for the ladies or, or do you want to be awesome? So, yeah, right. What kind um, of awesome? Yeah. And again, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm saying that there's, they're, they're different animals. Obviously, you know, like Lonnie's preparing for, you know, bodybuilding competitions and so forth. So a lot more of, um, you know, thinking in detail about these things is more important versus somebody who's just, you know, you know, damn that, damn everything. I just got to lift more weight. You know what I mean? And, and again, I'm not, I'm not, I, I never champion anybody who, who allows himself to get sloppy. I, I don't appreciate sloppy no matter who it is, but, but certainly I think, you know, again, for somebody who's just, just hell bent on being as strong as possible, um, you know, while maintaining, a semblance of athleticism. Yeah, it's just it's just as much calories as you can get in um, without thinking too too much of when or what. I mean, I eat a lot of calories to very late in the evening, um, and I can go with what Kiefer says as far as waking up the next day. Usually, the more calories I eat later into the night, usually the more I look bigger, fuller, and harder the next day. Well, people are naturally more hungry in the evening. Uh, there's even a, a new disorder in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, that's called nighttime binge disorder. And it's people who are okay the rest of the day, but at night they wig out. But Fortress, I wanted to back you up on something you said. First of all, and I know Phil thinks this too, when you're trying to eat 5,000 calories a day, I'm not sure the average public knows how hard that is. And you do have to eat pretty much from the time you get up to the time you go to bed. You can't do these, you know... Oh, I think I'm not going to eat after 8 p.m. Kind of nonsense. You got two more meals, man. You got to go for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, going kind of going back to what Kiefer said several minutes ago, um, I think it's quite easy for anybody, male or female, trainer or non-trainer, to you know have you know those occasional days where you go five, six, ten thousand calories a day for whatever reason. Um, but certainly, consistently trying to eat you know three, four thousand calories a day consistently. And, and on days where you're not, you know, having that big, you know, massive grease wheel at the thing with, you know, and milkshakes and all that stuff, grease. that is very, very tough. I mean, I'm 294 pounds, and I can tell you right now that it, I find it very difficult to, to every day consistently eat over 3,000 calories. Yeah. I normally do because I force myself to do it, but it's not easy. I mean, 
I always laugh when people are like, oh, you know, I'm hungry, I'm dieting, I'm this and that. I hate eating. I hate food. Um, (laughs) You know, to me, it's a holiday. If I actually give myself, it's funny because you're talking about, uh, I I do the complete opposite of what you're talking about. Like you're saying about, you know, you you give yourself one day to kind of reset everything so your body goes back into fat burning mode and stuff. I actually give myself one or two days a week when I actually go on holidays and I'll only eat three times a day. And to me, that is... That is as good as eating a pizza. Right. Just the fact that I don't have to worry about eating so much food because I, it gets to be a real pain in the ass. You're well, always Fortress, yeah. you yeah. and Phil and I all, we artificially maintain body weights 30 pounds probably above what our oh, metabolism yeah. is programmed to hold, you know? And, and I don't just mean, I mean even being weightlifters, you know what I mean? Like yeah. when I'm 225, Man, my body does not want to stay there, and I almost have to force it, you know. And I know Phil the same way. Rob, you're the same way. You're, I feel probably his body probably wants to weigh about two fifty. Rob, you maybe two sixty ish or something. I don't know. It's hard to guess, but you get the idea. We are artificially maintaining that by powering food. And let me link this back to what Kiefer was saying real quick. This is the teacher in me. About seventy percent of the carbohydrate you eat, of blood glucose, ends up in skeletal muscle. Now, I'm not saying that you can wig out on carbs and it's, you know, you're going to get a 70-30 ratio of muscle to fat gain. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying in healthy people, if your muscles aren't sore and even if you're not a bodybuilder, you're talking about 65 or 70 percent of it ending up as uh, muscle glycogen. And if your your liver's depleted, your liver's going to replete very quickly with that first, you know, 70 to 100 grams of carbs anyway. But but anyway, the point being is, uh, you know, muscle is the healthy recipient of blood glucose. And I think when Rob and Phil, and I'm not doing it now, but I sure was last year, when we power eat like we do, we're sort of banking on this idea that muscle will receive it, especially because we're turning on protein synthesis with really heavy lifts. So, you know, th- that's kind of how that works, I think. Well, well I've I mean, always... Yeah, just... I mean, oh, sorry. Beaver had the pleasure of watching me at the meet last weekend like knock back a half dozen donuts and like 16 peanut butter cups and Ooh, right. bars and, you know it's just it's just that, ugly. that's gross but uh man. yeah oh no man it was good though but um no it sucked every minute of it but you know i mean it, it, it had to be done but um you know i it just it's hard to maintain that body weight and that caloric expenditure um but i wanted to ask you for a question i mean this nighttime stuff with the power lifters. I know Mark, Mark Bell's having good results with it and, and some other people. Um, is it, you know, four, maybe at least four days of the week, they're having this, this carb load at night after their training, correct? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that could be a key point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and this is hard, hard training. You know, this yeah. is going in there and hitting eight, nine hundred pound squats and, you know, stuff like that. So Right. And and they're finding the you know, maintaining their weight hard. Like when Mark talked to me about doing his diet, he's like, you know, I just want to lose maybe five, ten pounds, get a little more solid and I was like, That's gonna be difficult. He's like, What do you mean? I can't lose five pounds? I'm like, You're gonna lose like twenty and uh he started his <laughs> diet, you know, he thought I was full of shit and all of a sudden his gear didn't fit anymore because he just yeah. was dropping weight so fast and you know, he resorted to um He's telling me he's eating like half a thing of Oreos every night after his training, you know, for the calories. I'm like, you know, I'm not sure that's the healthiest thing you should be eating, but, you know, he, he dropped his five or ten pounds and, um, you know, I saw him at the meet and it's just crazy. His triceps are out, his delts are out, his face is leaned out, his body shape has actually changed. And he, he likes to send me shirtless pictures of his four pack that he's got now. 
Um, I'm not sure how much I appreciate those on my phone all the time, but, (laughs) you know, whatever makes a guy happy. As long as he doesn't go the next step. Right, right. Yeah, I haven't gotten any. I I did have uh, one friend who, you know, same thing, you know, he just started dropping weight and and he, he got leaned out. He hadn't seen his abs in so long and he sent me a picture in his underwear. I'm like, yeah, I don't ever need to see that again. I'm glad you're ripped, but I don't need to see in white tighties. <laughs> Especially if you're sitting on public transportation when it comes right. to yeah. right. Okay, uh, let's first let's take a break for a couple of public service announcements here. Listeners that are interested in learning more about John Kiefer's diet concepts and books can go to www.carbnight.com. Or if they want to learn about the uh, carb backloading concept that he said he was using with some uh, powerlifters. Um, the principles and philosophy, at least, are laid out at www.dangerouslyhardcore.com. Fortress, what is best in life? If you need a break from listening to these barbarians and you want to read something intellectual, check out the library at www.ironradio.org. The feature article this month is about a conference that took place in Canada, an exercise physiology conference, where the researchers were literally trying to answer questions like the optimal number of sets and intensity for maximal protein synthesis and muscle growth. There's other juicy material there, like the effects of cortisol and adding more fat cells to your physique over time, how women recover better than men, and tons more. So if you're interested in reading as well as listening, check out www.ironradio.org and our article library. Thanks. Um, what I wanted to talk about the topic of the day is because of Kiefer's background in physics, of course, I wanted to talk a little bit about energy balance. Um, there are some people, like there are a lot of dietitians and healthcare workers and whatnot, and they really look at energy balance, right, calories in versus calories out, um, as the end-all, be-all of, of weight management. Uh, and so much so that, you know, there's a lot of academics on board with this too, and we have, you know, the Twinkie professor that was in the news recently, and he was really trying to prove a point uh, that, you know, I can basically lose tons of body f- weight uh, by just nibbling Twinkies and having small, you know, specialty coffees and it's not so much what you eat it's just how much and i'm oversimplifying that a little but um i wanted to talk a little bit about energy balance so first let me ask you Kiefer, uh what are you what's your take on energy balance as far as uh weight management uh you know ultimately it's <clears throat> it's not so much calories in calories out it's how many usable calories the body can get versus what's being expended, um, which sounds almost the same, but it, it's just like your car. If somebody only measured, or you know, if, if somebody only measured their mileage on the interstate, and then one day they measure their mileage from driving around town, you know, they're going to be screaming, "This is impossible!" I know I get 30 miles per gallon out of my car, and all of a sudden I'm getting 18 doesn't make any sense it's the same amount of gas but you know internal combustion engines run more efficiently under certain conditions and on the interstate you're getting a lot more energy 
out of that gallon of gas than you're getting around town. It's just more wasteful. Um, and that's how I view, I mean, essentially, as far as thermodynamics is concerned, the body's a heat engine. Um, so you should expect it to be able to run far more efficiently under some conditions than others. Uh, which then blows the calorie as a calorie argument out of the water when you start actually testing it and seeing how efficient different fuels are under different conditions. Right. There was actually a, a, a meta-analysis that came out about two years ago. I think it was Krieger in his group. And they were act, they were literally showing how, you know, if you look at protein, carbs, and fats, if you just follow pure energy balance, then, you know, with the 449 rule, you know, four calories in a gram of protein, four calories in a gram of carbs, nine in fat, then it shouldn't matter what your macronutrient profile is. But his meta-analysis, which, of course, is a study of other studies, so this is, you know, a fairly big overall sample, um, suggested that lower carb, higher protein intakes – we're better for body recomposing, you know, and as a bodybuilder, I think it's intuitive to a lot of us who are in powerlifting and bodybuilding that it's body composition, not body weight that's so important. And the, of course, the holy grail is to repartition, you know, energy and nutrients toward muscle mass uh, and rob them from fat mass as much as possible. So instead of this black box idea about energy in, energy out, you know, we're, we, we, we're, we, we're interested in what the box is made of, kind of, not just the size. Now, of course, the size of the box matters, and that's why Phil and Rob are always going on about how much they have to power down, you know, building blocks and fuel. Right. Wouldn't, wouldn't, I, I'm no scientist, but I, I, I've read a lot, um, probably more than some. Um, wouldn't PEF alone blow a hole in that? I mean, the thermic effect of food, just as it accounts to protein only, wouldn't that blow a hole in the whole calorie in, calorie out thing just by itself? Um, well, it depends. I mean, you, you know. can always, in a in a way, it does. Um, but even if you go through and you account for the thermic effect of food um, and that protein's higher than the other nutrients, you still come up with this missing factor of energy that they haven't been able to account for yet. Um, so, so it runs a little deeper than just that, um, you know, you get a higher thermic effect of food from, from some nutrients and under some conditions. Like, you can actually boost your thermic effect of food. It, the, the carb night, my, my first diet, um, th- there's a lot of studies that show if you take carbs out of the diet for a long time and then you throw in a bunch of carbs, you get double the heat production of normal. Yes. Right. Um, you know, that's what I wanted to sort of explain to people. The most elegant way I've heard this explained was uh, uh, it's actually in the Catch and McCardle exercise physiology text, which is dynamic energy balance as opposed to static. Mm-hmm. And I think what a lot of healthcare workers think about is calories in, calories out forever and ever. And, you know, as if the machine doesn't change. But like Kiefer's pointing out, you can – your metabolism, your the thermic effect, the efficiency changes depending on whether you're you know eating very little or eating a whole lot. I mean, they did elegant studies with even with like uh, uh, prisoners, you know, in state pens and whatnot, and where they overfed them, and they looked on a metabolic cart, and they're like, "Wow, look at their metabolism climb as they continue to overeat." Now that doesn't happen forever, 
you know, it's not, right. you know, ad infinitum there. But uh, the point is your metabolism speeds up and slows down. And that's why you get stuff. One one uh, researcher I heard at a conference this was years ago, I was in grad school, he called it the toast catastrophe, God. which is, you know, if you just add in that 100 calories or so from a piece of toast every day, then you should be one fat dude by the end of the year. But you're not. Your actual weight gain is almost inconsequential compared to what the, you know, the calories would have added up to, you know, 3,500 calories in a pound of fat, et cetera. So dynamic energy balance is what makes this so hard to track. It's not static. It's not a static, like, balance scale all the time. And unfortunately, I think that's about as far as a lot of, uh, of people look. You know, they don't realize that your metabolism does speed up with overfeeding and it does slow down, like, like I pointed out earlier, 40% even with dramatic underfeeding. So you could, now that 40% is an extreme number of people. Usually it's more like 20-ish or something. But the point is, you know, your metabolic rate will go up and down based on how much food you're eating. So it's, it's a very dynamic system. It's not just this static thing. Yeah. And I, I think, I think it's elementary for somebody to understand the concept of, um, you know, the human organism is constantly evolving and changing and, and, you know, day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour. I mean, you know, even what you're doing, what you're not doing, how it's being perceived by your body physiologically, biologically. I mean, you know, the seasons, all these types of things. So, I, I th- again, I think even for somebody like me who's, you know, this is not my ex- expertise, I, it, it stands to reason that, you know, it, we're I constantly you know, evolving and changing and, you know, altering um, organism. Right. Well, I mean, this goes back to exactly why, and we talked about it before on the show, the clients that I work with, you know, I don't set a caloric goal. I don't say we're going to add 250 calories on your diet a, a day. Um, we set a weight. You know, okay, we want to gain 15 pounds, and if the goal is to gain that damn 15 pounds as fast as you can. <laughs> because, I mean, it's like me going for this meat. You know, I started cramming as much food in my face, and, you know, a month goes by and I gained like two pounds, then all of a sudden I gained nine, you know, with no real difference in the amount of food I'm putting in. It's just not a, you know, you can't add on just 250 and expect that I'm going to gain a, a quarter of a pound a day or something. Yeah. You know, it yeah. just doesn't happen. You've got a power beyond these dynamic types of changes, you know. Right. Yeah, and I mean, weight yeah. loss is the same. I mean, you might you might lose a, a quarter pound here, a quarter pound there, and then all of a sudden you wake up and you're five pounds lighter. Yeah. And what, what explains that? I, I don't know. Well, let me give you an example. I think a lot of people, they think they're in a negative energy balance when they diet or a positive energy balance when they're overeating purposely. And they may not be. Like, for example, a lot of people don't think about this and, and many listeners may, but like when I'm doing my cardio now, I get up at, you know, <laughs> like 5 a.m. and I go do some pre-breakfast sort of walking because insulin levels are low. You know, I want to tear up some body fat, but I do it sort of mild so I don't want to ruin my weight workout later. But the point being is I'm thinking, okay, I just burned 400 calories. No weight. If I would have sat on my butt, I would have burned about a hundred. So, you know, you got to go through and sort of subtract off resting metabolism and see what your net balance is, you know, readers or listeners rather, if you follow. So I'm thinking, well, I better do about a 500 calorie workout, four or 500, because, you know, at at about one calorie per kg, you know, per hour, I'm going to burn a a certain number of calories just sitting around. So I've got to make sure it's above and beyond that if I want to stay on my sort of fairly linear 
you know, uh, drop in body weight, you know, negative energy balance. And I think it's similar probably with overeating. If your metabolism does speed up, and it does when you start to overeat, mm-hmm. well, you may think you're eating an extra three or 400 yeah. calories a day, but you're not. It might be two or yeah. 300. And, you know, like right. Phil and Rob always say, loser, that's not enough, you know, I mean, that's not enough. <laughs> You, you, you've got to run at it really hard and put on the size. And then as we talked about in an early episode, then hold that new high body weight until your body starts to become accustomed to it, hopefully. Exactly. And the thing is, most people start eating big and then they start training bigger than they were before. And they just cancel all that crap out. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's also a bulking diet, so they three, do three times the training they were and they eat two times as much, so they're negative again. But you know what? It's a psychological thing, and I can say this, and I know Phil knows exactly what I'm talking about. It, it's a psychological thing because you're, I, I fully um, um, subscribe to that whole idea of getting to a, a higher body weight at any, you know, any means possible and then holding it there and then kind of building yourself into it. The psychological aspect of it is, is that you always feel like crap. You always feel bloated. You know, your face is always puffy. Um, you know, you, you, you sit down, you just feel like crap all the time. You bet. And, and I think psychologically that just most people can't, can't live with that, right? They could go for, through that for several days and they think this is screwball, right? I'm, uh, you're very self-conscious. You think everybody thinks you're a fat head. You think, you know, you can't breathe. You, <laughs> all these different things, right? And, you're, and it's a psychological game, isn't it? Like, I mean, you, I mean, and I, like, that's what I'm saying. I, I know, I know that Phil knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. you really have to just, knuckle down day in and day out and in your mind just um you know constantly reassert to yourself that what you're doing is going to eventually you know pay dividends positively you know and all that discomfort and you know sweating all the freaking time and sitting on the toilet you know 10 times a day you know it, it, no but i mean you know without being crude but it's true right no and, yeah grim yeah, reality yeah, yeah. You really just have to knuckle down and say, you know, okay, this is a pain in the ass, and it is. Like I said, you're always sweaty. You're always on the can. You're always bloated. You feel like crap. Yes. You just, you know. But I mean, it, but you know what? I the way I always kind of look at it is like, you know, when when I'm doing this, I think, okay, but tomorrow when I'm in the gym, it's going to work, you know, and it, it'll re reinvigorate my psychology to committing myself to this because, you know, nothing worth having is is easy and and. God knows it's not easy to do this, but I mean, you have to kind of set yourself psychologically. It's a, it's a big, it's a big component of it. Rob, at, hearing oh, yeah. you talk, I mean, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say the other thing, you know, that keeps you going is that I, you always know you're building this larger motor too at the same time, and that when I make that choice, because it's a, it's, it's a choice to cram this much food in your face, and it sucks. I'm with Rob. It, it's horrible every day. I, I'm here in freaking Vegas, and people are loving the buffets, and I'm hating them. And I went to it four times yesterday. <laughs> I bought the all-day ticket, you know, and um, it just, you know, I also know that I'm building this bigger motor all the time, and when I make that decision to even just ease off and eat normal, I'm going to shed body fat like crazy, you know, yeah. and it's because I've built this huge, freaking high-powered, you know, high-performance motor, and it just sheds that stuff off. Yeah. It's pretty well established. You're going to go through a half a dozen to a dozen extra calories a day for each new pound of muscle mass that you put yeah. on. I mean, and that's not perfect science, I but I have some good references. Freaking, it's like it's like Thanksgiving dinner. You know, we're cramming in all this food, we're baking all this food, and then when we when it's time to eat, which I equate to when it's time to cut fat, it only takes 15 minutes to eat the meal. You know, we're going to be able to shed that meal real quick. <laughs> you know. 
Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's even just it's it's just even society in general, right? Because people always have the you know, I mean, and mostly rightly they have this kind of perception. Well, oh, you know, uh, when are you going to lose all this weight, and you know that can't be healthy for you, and you're going to suffer for it, and oh my god, and it's 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 so psychological because you have to think to yourself, you know. What is more important to you? And this might sound stupid to a lot of people who don't have the, the iron bug and the kind of the, but you know, like, do you want to live an extra three years or you just want to live the years that you're going to live, you know, a huge animal? As I a mean, man. Well, you know, and, and, and again, I'm not trying to be trite about this or kind of be, you know, juvenile about it, but no, the truth I is, I mean, in life, we do have to make choices, right? And, and some people, yeah. it's, it's a valid choice to say, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to maybe, you know, shave off a few years of my life. For for the you know I mean this might sound cheesy and tacky but you know for the triumph of being you know what I would imagine myself to be at my best yeah. I mean and you have to kind of think that and like I said it's so psychological though because you're constantly being bombarded by you know people who you know telling you oh you know you're 40 years old now you should be losing weight that's hard on your heart it doesn't matter right. like this it's like it's like you know what. I don't care. Like I'm, I know what I'm doing. I know where I want to be, and I know what I have to do to do that. And so be it. You know, if if I don't conform to a society's perception of what I should be or be trying to do, or because people don't understand that concept, right? I'm trying to get bigger. I'm trying to get bigger. No, they don't. That's right. I mean, you know what? I was talking to a, a junior faculty person the other day. I don't know if I mentioned this on an earlier show or not, but she said. You know, what what are you doing? You know, all you eat is chicken breast and, and, you know, uh, yams and something. And, and, uh, I thought you were, you know, gaining weight. So she said, I don't understand. Why would, why did you gain all that weight in the fall? And now you're just taking it all back off. I mean, I'm like, well, it's body composition. Come on. You know that. You know what I mean? The whole idea is you put on a 70 30 mix of muscle and fat and then hopefully you take off. Uh, 80, 20 or 70, 20 mix of fat versus muscle and you're much better off in the end, you know, but amazingly, you know, even as a young faculty person, it's, it's just outside of her, you know, normal realm of thinking that why would you gain all that weight? Now you're trying to lose all this weight. It just seemed bizarre to her. You know, well, I had somebody recently say, "Oh, you know, you're 290 pounds, you know, wouldn't, uh, you know, what you'd still be huge if you're 250 pounds. I'm like, listen, if you're a if you're a natural strength athlete, natural, you don't have any chemical hormonal assistance, and you're 250 pounds, I'm, I guarantee you that you're going to be. But you're normally 290. You're going to have a massive reduction in your ability to move weight. And again, I mean, the only guys that you see that are squatting eight, nine hundred pounds and that are sub 250 are guys who are using tons of equipment and tons of drugs. I don't care who you are. That's just the way it is. The fact of the matter is you look at the world's strongest man competitions at the elite level and, you know, and they make not make fun, but they kind of, you know, chide the guys who are like, you know, sub 300 pounds is like, you know, oh, here's the weight of the competition. (laughs) I mean, so it's it's all relative (laughs) to what you're doing. The average guy on the street, 250 pounds is huge. But you know what? When you're standing under a 700 pound squat, 250 pounds, you might as well be freaking like, you know, like Kate Moss. You've got, you know, you've got no structure under, you know, it's all relative, right? 700 pounds of 250, 250 is nothing. You know, so it's yeah. all relative. Right. But to the average guy on the street, oh, two fifty, you should, you know, it's uh, that's all the, you know, you're you're massive. It's like, well, right. you're not when you're standing under seven hundred pounds right. anymore. No, well, yeah, it's all relative. What we're talking about here is real world observations. I mean, you know, Kiefer was talking about, you know, with his uh, his book and his own sort of uh, 
I, I don't want to loosely use the term research, but just making observations in a systematic way, you know, even if it's like a case series of cases or, or that kind of thing. That kind of stuff, you know, you start to watch things pan out in a certain way and you get a perspective, especially like you said, when your your observations include this herd of behemoths that the average person doesn't see, you know, yeah. and you know what it's going to take for you to squat seven or eight hundred pounds or pull eight hundred pounds off the floor. And when you're right, when you're not, you know, heavily using it, it, that's going to call for some extra body fat. I mean, even guys who do use, of course, have extra body fat when they do that. But that's absolutely right. I mean, it's it's not a um, a natural state of being for someone to be, you know, ripped and walk up and start squatting six hundred for reps. That's just not no. a natural state of being. No, so, I mean, no yeah, and I mean, yeah. Since since I took up Highland Games, you know, I've had a hard time explaining this to even people that have an athletic background and and fitness background, powerlifting and this and that. And it's you know, like me, I need to get to two eighty. And it's because, and I don't care how I get there. They're like, well, it's just got to be lean, right? I was like, no, it doesn't matter, you know, because I'm in a whole new sport here, and it's all about counterbalances and this and that. And when you're spinning in a circle with 56 pounds on an end of a chain, you know, it doesn't care if it's fat or, or, or muscle or right. bone. It just needs yeah. something there to balance it to where you don't, you don't get dragged across the ground. Right, counterweight, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. and, and it's a whole new different deal. And... um you know, it's like at this point I don't care. I said I'm I'm two months off of my season. I just need to be 280. That's it. it doesn't matter. You know, bring on the pizza. You know. I'm so, so glad, Phil. I am so glad I'm not around you and Rob right now, <laughs> because I'd be gnawing at that dry chicken breast, so pissed off at you. <laughs> Rob's taking in a grease wheel as he calls you know. it. You know, and Phil's. But, you know, um, <laughs> you guys are going nuts. One thing I wanted to mention that I thought about when we were at Keeper on the show, and I, I think you'd agree with this, Lonnie, and it was it was a resounding theme at the ISSN that I went to with you. And, you know, all the scientists were saying, you know, in the end, science, it, it tells you a lot, but you need to look at really what's happening, too. Um, well, yeah, let's not confuse that. Let's not, I mean, I have some students go, well, science says one thing, this is another, we're not sure. Right. It always comes down to the methods and how you're, you yeah. know, what are the, what's the scenario around your observations, right? Yeah. So, I mean, science is very stepwise and it, it always will come to the right answer because it has error correcting machinery. Uh, yeah. like if Kiefer notices something that I don't see in my research or in my studies, I, I, when I say research, I mean data collection, but right. then there's a reason for that. Maybe it's age. Maybe it's the type of body composition equipment we're using or the duration of the study or the type of carbohydrate or, right. you know, or, you know, there's always that fallback. Maybe it's something nutrigenetic or performance genetic. And, you know, that's always going to be a monkey wrench, which is why you like to see a well, good I mean, I mean, heck, even, even a strong placebo effect. Who cares? It's working. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Right. But, uh, and, and, you know, it brings up a good point about research too, because a lot of people will mistake observational studies for, experimental verification right for cause and, and effect yeah exactly you know they're very different um and the one i always go back to at least recently because i wrote an article about it was um breakfast you know there's so many observational studies that breakfast is you know your key meal for the day and there's very very few experimental studies for that and all the experimental studies i could find where they had people stop breakfast and move it towards the end of the day or something like that are actually very positive they get positive cognitive effects in school children. Um, they get 
positive weight balance effect and people trying to lose body fat. Um, and there's just there's so few of those, but the evidence is compelling. I would love to see far fewer observational studies about breakfast and far more experimental studies. To yeah, I work really- with a, a senior guy, level guy, and he, he's always saying that. Where's the data? on breakfast as, you know, break the fast and all that. I think that's a classic example where you get sort of school t- teachers and dietitians and people that it, 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 it seems to be logical and it seems like a warm and fuzzy kind of thing to say is, oh, go get your breakfast, honey. And, you know, but if you look at grade point averages and that kind of stuff, the data is sort of back and forth. And now I did yeah. once I wrote an article too called why breakfast. And there is some, like you said, mostly observational or, you know, cross-sectional kinds of free living stuff where people who eat breakfast, they have fewer head colds or some of them even have lower cortisol concentrations in the blood and things like that. But it's, it's definitely not the huge consensus in the literature that you would think would be there with the way that the government and the healthcare workers are, you know, preaching that. You know, yes. but, but you know what? Again, I think it's relative to again the person that is or isn't eating breakfast and what their end game is. Right. For somebody trying to gain weight who's you know trying to put down three thousand plus calories a day, um, you know, breakfast becomes critical only because they need that extra meal for for food. Right. Um, but you know, then again, somebody who doesn't really care maybe maybe what they care about are test scores. They're in college. Um, then it, you know, it becomes debatable, you know, that you you might get better performance if you don't. Um, and and actually most of the research I've seen is you do get better performance, um, at least cognitively if you wait until about lunchtime to eat. You know what? I'm a huge breakfast eater. Lonnie knows that. I never miss breakfast. No, I don't either. I I think there's a genetic, uh, genetic thing there too. Just like there are, it's well known there are early risers. And there are people who are late, more late day people. And I think a lot of that is, you know, I wake up hungry. You know, my wife's like, I'm just so not hungry, you know. And <laughs> I actually but, don't ever w- I wake up hungry. And I'm not like, like, I'm not naturally a big eater. Um, but I just eat breakfast because I, because I've always believed that it's, you know, part and parcel of what my, you know, um, you know, goals are. But I, I will say this, um, to what Kiefer said, I have noticed though that, if if I really want to be, you know, on my kind of like mental clarity and kind of a little bit more, um, you know, sprightly in my energy and stuff, it actually pays for me to actually like just back off the calories heavily for a day. A little lighter. Because um, yeah. I absolutely, there's no question that stuffing calories into me kind of makes me a little bit more placid when I'm just kind of like, you know, not in the gym. Well, I um, can tell you I, the whole idea we were talking about earlier. I mean, if you look at the data uh blood sugars run lower insulin runs higher in the morning well insulin is an, an anabolic hormone you know and yeah you're going to put on a little bit of fat with each bit of muscle like you were saying fortress but i mean th- that's a time of day you can't if you're trying to put on weight you definitely don't want to miss that and i'll tell you even now that i'm dieting i still have oats or sometimes i'll i'll shave off some of the carbs by having you know oat bran hot cereal or something with egg whites or some whole eggs and things like that i still eat breakfast because i to me, that refuels me because I'm sort of an ectomorph. I'm not as heavily built as Phil and Rob. So I need that energy. I cannot go into a workout later in the day, day after day, really carb depleted. My performance is going to suck. So I really look at breakfast as sort of a cautious refuel, you know, get some glycogen back in my muscles and stuff like that. And, you know, kind of just get myself, uh, 
psychologically and physically sex so I can tear up some heavy weights in the afternoon because I'm a big proponent of keeping the weights heavy, you know, as you diet. But yeah, right. yeah. But anyway, yeah. Well, I think I think whatever the, everything boils down to again on this show and it has on a lot of our shows lately is that what you do needs to follow what you want to do. <laughs> You know? oh, yeah. I mean, there's no one set rule, and your your no. your your goals need to be first, and then your habits follow those. Yeah. Um, yeah. People all the time they ask me, "Oh, so you wrote a diet book? What's your diet philosophy?" Well, my philosophy is food's a drug, and you need to learn how to use it to best achieve your goals. Right. You know. Right. So I might put somebody on carb night for whatever their goals are. Might put somebody else on carb backloading, but you know I, I work with a couple Ironman competitors, and I sure as hell do not take the carbs out of their diet. Yeah, you know that they're they're loaded up with carbs constantly. Absolutely. Um, so it's and you know and then on top of that, of course, your training is also I almost consider it like um, gene therapy because it just activates so many genes and um, changes so many profiles that you know you everything needs to come together. Uh, yeah. If if you're stuck on one one route, you're just never going to achieve your ultimate goals. Right, and you oh, know what? You have to take. I'm sorry. You have to take everything that you know everybody here is talking about relative to what you're doing and manipulate it to your best benefit. I mean, and that's a constantly evolving thing where you know you learn this, learn that. Well, I maybe this didn't work for me. That uh, it, it's a constantly evolving thing. So you know, it's I always say like whether it be the exercise or the diet or whatever, what have you. It's all just a, a gradual manipulation of all these different factors that will ultimately lead somebody to either achieving what they want or failing. Right. It's, you know, if you think about like, if you think like a statistician, this is a giant multifactorial model, right? This is a multiple regression situation where you've got dozens of variables, you know, things that come at you in life. It's, it could be scheduling things and, and, and your genetics and your, your preferences and your family, social, economic. There's so many things, environmental and um, temperature. I mean, and then you're trying to decide which of these variables loads most heavily to actually make right. a change. And so like yeah. when you and Phil say you got to eat so much that it overpowers all the other systems, what you're doing is you're taking that one variable out of let's say 500 or even if it's 30 or whatever, and you're making that load more heavily you know, than everything else towards some end goal. And so, I mean, you know, so researchers kind of get that too. And I mean, it's amazing the power of statistics. You can even calculate the percent of variance, you know, how much a certain activity or a certain variable will contribute toward the end result. You can actually get some pretty good numbers on that. And so you just got to, well, you know, emphasize the ones that have huge effects. And I think we, we're all probably in agreement. Energy and insulin are two gigantic factors. I mean, you could talk oh, about yeah. all kinds of other yep. things for fat loss. I mean, there's a, a half a dozen different fat loss pathways of one type or another. I've even written about them. But pancreatic hormones and energy balance, undeniable. You know, it's yep. undeniable. Yep. Well, I mean, um, you know, it comes down to, you know, everything's multifaceted too. You know, me and sure, me and Robert Cramming, all these calories in our mouth, but we're also going and picking up lots of stuff. You know, you can't have one without the other. And then there's right. the individual aspect of it. You know, you get it on from from a strength coach perspective too. People come up to you, well, why don't you just give me the program you had John do? 
well, I'm sorry, you're not John. Yeah. You know? Right. If we could do that, then everybody follow what Chuck Vogelbull was doing. We'd all be freaking <laughs> Chuck Vogelbull. It right. just doesn't happen. Yeah. It's actually uh, one of the projects I've started. Um, I'm trying to develop software. I'm starting with just a diet <laughs> portion. But, uh, you know, you can go in and it'll auto-generate a type of diet for you. And as you go through, um, you can give it kind of human-type feedback, like, oh, I felt bloated or something like that. And um, it'll actually start to tweak parameters of the diet for you um, in, until it reaches a point that is optimal for you for your lifestyle. And um, as the project develops, I want to take in the you know scheduling and um, you know incorporate their exercise into it. So you know the you know it, it's hard to take into account all those at once, but if the system can evolve naturally. Um, you can start to pick up on a lot of little things that might make a big difference in somebody's life, like right. like Lonnie was talking about. Well, and I think that sort of software would have to be something that you did on a fairly regular basis too. You're never going to get to this Correct. perfect level because, like you said, you know, you're it's a dynamic system and things are going up and going down, and Correct. so you know, so you might be like, oh, one of the factors is my rate of perceived exertion in this workout was an 18, and that used to be a 14. Well, maybe that triggers the software to say, oh, maybe you, maybe you do need a little bit more energy, you know, more right. calorie intake. Yeah, or, let's up the you know. carbs a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. All right, guys. Well, I think we're out of time. So that was a, that was a great discussion. Thanks for being yeah, on with us, Kiefer. Oh, yeah. It was my pleasure. Yeah, no, we, we enjoyed having you on for sure. Kiefer is the second yeah. person who we've had on after talking to Chris. I thought for sure I was going to go after you guys. <laughs> just oh. where's your references where is this because i didn't you know I, but that's that's why you know you wait and you see what people have to say like i thought for sure Kiefer was going to say oh yeah you know car binge you could do it at night and get away with it every night and i'm like oh god i got i'm not i can't allow this to happen <laughs> but yeah, no, you, i mean i, I mean I, these I, kinds of things really do work and i mean they're very powerful uh, you know, the, the low carb, calorie controlled, low carb thing. I mean, I'm doing sort of that one day a week protein sparing modified fast thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, you guys know I started dieting the day after Thanksgiving and I was 216 and I was on the scale yesterday at 203. So wow. I'm dropping weight almost too fast. And again, what, like, yeah. just like we were just saying to Kiefer. So I'm actually up in the, the carb intake a little, you know, I'm like, Oh, maybe I better, you know, have an extra serving of oats in the morning or something or whatever. Yeah. So you're going to be, you're going to be Rob's left leg before long. If you don't watch out. I know. I know. <laughs> well, Hey, at least I remember that it's bodybuilding and not body ripping. So yeah. there you go. <laughs> don't you worry. There you go. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for being on. Thanks, Thanks man. Thanks a lot, yeah. everyone. Thanks for having me, guys. Talk to you later. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye. For the best sports nutrition information on the planet, make plans to attend the 8th Annual ISSN Conference and Expo, June 23rd to 25th, 2011, at the Westin Las Vegas Hotel, Casino, and Spa. We'll have the latest on creatine, beta-alanine, protein, nutrient timing, and much, much more. So... For more information, go to www.theissn.org. Hey, Iron Radio listeners. This is John Mike. I just wanted to tell you about the American Society of Exercise Physiologists. It's pleased to announce the 2011 National Meeting on September 22nd, 23rd, and 24th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This will actually be the fourth time the National Conference has been held here in Albuquerque. This three-day event will be held at the Radisson Hotel and Water Park, New Mexico Sports and Wellness, 
and the University of New Mexico and partly hosted by the Exercise Science Program here at the University of New Mexico. Go to www.ascp.org to learn more about this exciting conference. Thanks so much. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like Iron Radio, if you like what we do, uh, the education, interviewing uh, industry personalities, or many of the pro bodybuilders or coaches that we've had in the past, uh, please just click on the donate button at www.ironradio.org and make a donation. We've had some great donations from people that have kept us going. Thank you so much. Uh, so please visit uh, the website, click on the donation button, or if you like, uh, and it's a similar situation, Buy some Iron Radio cool stuff. We've got T-shirts and mugs and things like that, and those things help support the site and keep us on the air. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need. 